0: Has the last week changed women's soccer in the United States forever? The NWSL is in crisis, and today on All of Us, the U.S. Women's Soccer Show, we're going to lay out everything that's happened and everything that might happen in the weeks and months moving forward. My name is Seth Ritalny. Welcome to the show. Joining me, as always, is Gold's Women's Soccer Correspondent, Amy Ruskay. Amy, how's it going?
1: Yes, as good as it can be. It's been a heavy week, hasn't it?
0: Yeah, for sure. We're, we're, we're still dealing with the major fallout from an athletic story last week where two former Portland Thorns players, Mana Shim and Sinead Fairley, went on the record to detail emotional abuse and sexual coercion by their former head coach, Paul Riley. Fairley spoke about her time playing under Riley at the Philadelphia Independence before she was with the Thorns. And everything that she went through as he groomed her. And eventually she ended up feeling as if he coerced her into having sex with him. Later on, we heard from Mana Shim and the story that she told about her experience under Riley was very similar to Farrelly's. They were both teammates together under Riley with the Thorns and and Riley. You know, all throughout this story, in, in addition to some of the the coercion, he also was emotionally abusive towards them. There's some really ugly stuff. Um, there's threads of of homophobia throughout this story, and Shim details a night where Riley has her and Fairly in his apartment alone after a night out drinking. There's there's a lot of Drinking in the story, Riley spending a lot of time with his players out at bars, also hosting them at his at his home. Players feeling like they were kind of forced to to go to these parties with their coach. Shim and, and, and Farrelly both detailed an experience they had with Riley, where he told them that if they were to kiss in front of him, that they wouldn't have to run a particular fitness drill the next day. Go read the story. There's there's a lot of ugly behavior there that is just completely inappropriate and over the line and nothing that a coach or a mentor or anybody in any position of authority should should ever do. Riley has denied ever having sex with any of his players. When the story dropped, there was an immediate reaction. Within hours, Riley had been fired. He was the coach of the North Carolina Courage. The following day, Lisa Baird resigned as the commissioner of the NWSL. What this story was about, just as much as one abusive coach, is the system that protected him. There was a complaint filed to the Portland Thorns back in 2015. Shim went to the team's HR department The team's ownership was made aware of what was going on. And at the end of that season, they let Paul Riley go as their coach because of this complaint. But when they made the announcement, they did not make public why they were letting him go. They made it sound like they were getting rid of him because of poor results. And the team hadn't performed that well that year. So there weren't any questions asked about why they were really firing him. In burying the real reason for his departure, they left an opening for, for Riley to be hired by another team, which he was just months later. The Western New York Flash hired him as their head coach, even though they were made aware of what happened in Portland. The league was made aware of what happened in Portland. And yet he was still hired as head coach. And then eventually he stayed on with the team after they moved to North Carolina and became the North Carolina Courage. Earlier this year... Under the league's new anti-harassment policy, Shim tried once again to get the league to, to reopen this case, and uh, they declined, which has gotten Baird into a bit of trouble that eventually ended up in her resignation. There have been no fewer than five investigations opened in the in the days since this story. U.S. Soccer, the NWSL, the Thorns, FIFA, and the U.S. Center for Safe Sport have all opened their own separate investigations into Riley's behavior and we're gonna have to see exactly how those play out whether there's any overlapping conclusions or contradicting conclusions or how everything works with those that is a lot of scene setting amy your reaction to to what's been going on over the last few days
1: it's been really heavy i mean it's something that's been massive over here as well i think you know the response the support the you know the way that people are are really coming together and and trying to change things i think um i watched the the today show clip with with manishim and Jeanette Ferelli and alex morgan today and um ferelli said which was a really good way to put it that the support has turned the moment into a movement and you can see that the players are sick of it and the players association is is trying to do everything they can to to change things and yeah i think you know it's obviously a A really harrowing story that's been told and it's nothing that you ever want to read but it's a really important story that has to be told and it needs to be told to sadly to change things really
0: yeah i I think it's really important to talk about the context into which this riley story landed because this was a league that already was in crisis. There already were players calling for huge changes in the way that they're protected and the way that they're treated. So this Riley story, if it happened on its own, it would have been enough to call for serious changes. But the fact that it's happened along with so many other coaches and people in positions of authority committing some kind of misconduct and being removed for their actions. That's why we're in a full-fledged crisis. Let's, Let's talk about what's happened over the last year. We've had Craig Harrington, the former Utah Royals coach, was accused of creating a toxic environment. He was let go. We've heard about Richie Burke with the Washington spirit, emotionally abusing players. There are players that have gone on the record there. He was recently terminated for cause after a league investigation. Christy Holly, the racing Louisville coach a couple months ago, was also terminated for cause. Fareed Ben-Stiti, the coach of O.L. Reign, he was let go. And we didn't exactly know the full reasoning behind it until this week. Initially, we were told that he had resigned. And later, it has now come out that he was asked to resign for an incident that took place In training. This was also a guy that had some baggage going into his hiring with OL Rain. Um, Lindsey Horan played under him at PSG and she had detailed some of the uh, body shaming that had gone on under his watch there. We also had a GM, Elise Lahue of Gotham FC, who was fired earlier this year under the league's anti harassment policy. So the Riley story did not happen in a vacuum. This is this is a full fledged crisis.
1: Yeah, and I think what's the the worst thing is, yeah, you see all these people being let go and you know being investigated for this abuse and that abuse, which is obviously awful. But it's also the fact that a lot of this has been sort of covered up in a way. The the thing that, that threads all of this together is a lack of transparency. And you saw it when um, Alex Morgan was tweeting the, the email exchange that um, I think it was Sinead Ferrelli had with Lisa Baird. And it says in the email um, something along the lines of, you know, we investigated this and um, we can't disclose any more details. And then later in the same email, two paragraphs below, it says about the commitment to transparency. It's not just these instances as well. You remember the, the Sarah Gordon case of the racial profiling. That, again, was one where there was just a severe lack of transparency. And I think that that's something that's particularly frustrating, especially when you know you see this coach, Paul Riley, who a lack of transparency has led from him going to a different club and players not being aware of that. like Players you know, have been working under Paul Riley and not knowing what had happened before and you know, the fans the fans have such a powerful voice. We've seen that a lot in the last year in football and soccer. And you know, when fans, you know, were to hear about this, they'd have been outraged and that lack of transparency that will enrage not only players but fans but but everybody and really one of the well not obviously the worst thing, but it's something that really absolutely needs to change moving forward.
0: Yeah, you look at Richie Burke with the spirit. Initially, we were told that he had been reassigned to a position in the front office because of health reasons. And and only after some reporting from the Washington Post did we find out the real reason for his dismissal. And with Paul Riley, Merritt Paulson, the owner of the Thorns, he released an open letter yesterday where he said the reason that they didn't actually say why they were letting him go in 2015 was to protect the players. It's, it's hard to really wrap your head around that reason because by not being transparent about why they were letting him go, they allowed him to potentially prey on other players in other locations because if they had actually said what really happened, there's, there's no way he would have gotten another chance to, to coach in the league. And instead he coached for another six years. And, and so that is something like you said, that that, that really needs to change going forward. Um, you know, there are reasons why different clubs have failed to release all the details of, of what's been going on. But I, I think now we've seen that that ends up doing a lot more harm than good.
1: Yeah. And I think it was Megan Klingerberg that that said that on Twitter, that the fact that, that hasn't been put out there as now possibly endangered however many more people. It's like an underlying thread in a lot of instances that we've seen, both on this sort of topic and, and other topics in the NWSL, that, that lack of transparency that, like you say, gets sort of said, oh, it's to protect the players, but end up doing a lot more harm than good, really. I think we need to talk
0: about this culture of silence that has kind of pervaded women's soccer in the U.S so many of these players have been conditioned to think and you know we saw Alex Morgan talk about it in that athletic story if they were to go public with some of these accusations with what happened to them that it could potentially put the existence of the league in danger there were two leagues before the NWSL that only lasted three years and there has been kind of a a line of thinking throughout this league that if the NWSL does not succeed, then that could be it for professional top flight women's soccer in the United States. And so this mindset has taken hold over the years where players have been, whether it was explicitly or implicitly told that you need to protect the league and you need to protect the teams. And if you go public with some of this stuff that could put, the entire existence of the league in Jeopardy. I think what we've seen over the last year is that the NWSL has gained a little bit more of a foothold. They are at 10 teams now. They're expanding. They have a new television deal. They have brought in a lot of new sponsors. And there's this sense that the league is on a lot more stable footing. And I think because of that and because of some changing just cultural attitudes towards believing women when they report these things, the Me Too movement. Uh, I, I think that has provided a different kind of atmosphere that these claims can now enter and there can now be solid concrete action being taken. Whereas in the past that might not have happened.
1: Yeah. Was it Morgan in, in the story um, was saying like there was all this, about you know how to protect the league and and how to you know protect the clubs and there was absolutely nothing on on how to protect the players and yeah the work that the that the players have done to create this anti-harassment policy and work together to to get that out there and to make change and this is the thing as well like you see now that the players are, are changing things for how they think it should be done and it's like well, if if you'd have involved the players a a little bit more, many many years ago, like you know a lot of these problems probably could have been eliminated. And also just talking to the players, you know, listening to the players when the players is filing a complaint, like just to listen to the players and to speak to the players, like how much of a difference that makes. And yeah, uh, it's just it seems like a really simple thing has just been completely overlooked. And it's not just under one sort of commissioner; it's something that's obviously it goes back years. And it's something that, it's not just down to one particular person, but it's down to the structure. It's down to everything there, and yeah, it's it's going to take a serious overhaul, um, and it needs a, a serious overhaul, really.
0: Yeah, because there there were there were so many steps that could have been taken along the way to to hold Riley accountable, and and the through line in all of these is protect the teams, protect the league, over protecting players. I think that the people that were in charge were afraid of what might happen if this got out. They they were afraid it could be an existential crisis for the league. They were afraid that it could take down individual teams. Uh, and, and so instead of cutting the problem out when it happened, it was allowed to spread. It was allowed to fester. And that was simply because there was a desire to protect the league, protect the teams at all costs. And and now I think what you're seeing is the players are starting to fight back. And that is what we've seen through the NWSLPA, especially this week.
1: Yeah. It's really sad, really, when you think about it. Protect the league, protect the clubs. And, you know, there was, I was watching the Today Show just before we did this podcast. And, um, you know, Manishim and Sinead Ferelli talking about, like, you know, the damage that it did to them. It didn't only sort of end their careers, it, it damaged them and, like, you know, their self-confidence and, you know, how they feel is damaged because of that. And, you know, I think that that's, that's so sad that, you know, that is the result of, oh, but we need to protect the clubs in the league. And I think what's been, um, you know, like we said about the support earlier, um, the players that have come out, like Twitter the other day was, you know, it was obviously a a kind of sad, Thing, but also the support of absolutely every player from everywhere, but as well across um MLS. You know, I was seeing the Portland Timbers game. It was it against Miami, where um there was the you know protect the players banners. There's been so many protect the players banners, I've seen protests, seen everything, and um I think that the support that people have given the story and the voice um you know beyond just the people that were telling the story, the amount of support that it's had to to carry it into sort of the mainstream media even more so than it already was to carry it into you know for people to hear it for people to see it and carry it into more conversations like um the way that it's been amplified has been absolutely um well I don't know what the right word is but really good to see in a in a way that as good a way you can see it in a a pretty sad and a situation that you don't want to see
0: yeah and I I think that the involvement of of Alex Morgan in the story was was really huge like obviously these two players fairly and shim were credible they should have been believed no matter what but having morgan there to back them up i think can't be underestimated in terms of adding that that real cachet that that someone like morgan one of the best players in women's national team history brings for her to corroborate their story and for her to come out on Twitter that day with the receipts, with those emails that she had sent to Lisa Baird earlier this year, I think, I think it's massive because now it becomes a greater cultural story because Morgan is a name. She's somebody that people recognize, and I think it's important to contrast that to, to what happened about 10 years ago. Um, with magic Jack in a a similar situation in, in the the WPS, um, there was an owner that was accused of, of creating a a toxic environment and Abby Wambach who was on that team actually came out in support of that owner. And if you're a fringe player on this team and you have the biggest star on the U S national team, Abby Wambach coming out against you in support of the owner, well, where is that going to take you it's not going to lead to much um so to have alex morgan uh you know we saw megan rapino we've seen becky Sauerbrunn, we've seen most of the big us women's national team stars try to elevate this issue and and take the side of the players and and try to really use their platforms to cause change i think has been really really important and a big part of the story
1: yeah and i think as well like the idea that you know Manishim could could go to alex morgan and and want to report this story this well not the story but the complaint against Riley like for her to go to one of the most recognizable faces not just in you know women's soccer in the US but women's soccer and just generally sport worldwide like it speaks volumes of Morgan's character the fact that she is one of the most recognizable faces sort of you know in the world and for Manashim to, to talk about the confidence that she had to sort of go up to Morgan and have her help her report listen for Morgan to be helping her through that like you say to have somebody like her on your side when your com- self-confidence is on the floor because of what you were experiencing from you know a coach like that must be absolutely massive and um it was really nice to see them to see Manishim sat alongside Alex Morgan on you know the Today Show and, and Alex Morgan not sort of like she was just there for support and yes she might be one of the most recognizable faces in in the world, but she's there to be the most supportive teammate that she could possibly be to somebody who had been through, you know, something absolutely awful, and trying to help her in every way that she can and has been doing, you know, this whole time. Um, it's massive. All of us, the
0: U.S. Women's Soccer Show from Goal. Get the latest news and views on the U.S. Women's National Team and the NWSL on Goal. All of us, the U.S. Women's Soccer Show from Goal. Find more U.S. women's soccer news and opinion on goal. One of the particularly appalling parts of this story is how Riley seems to have systematically targeted these fringe players, um, a lot of whom were on these contracts that they called semi-guarantee. They could be canceled at any time. Um, I think we saw the same thing happen with Richie Burke, too, where he would target these fringe players on his team and and leave the big stars alone, because those are the people who have the least amount of power. And as a predator, that's who you target. And that, that is something that goes beyond sports. And it's, it's, it's not a surprise, but it's, it's just particularly galling to see how this is so calculated from, from someone like Riley to, to go after these, these players that have, the least amount of protection the least ability to defend themselves and so yeah having having somebody like morgan involved um both at the time and filing the complaint and, and now um the it, it, it changes the game
1: yeah and it goes back to what you're saying about you know protect the clubs protect the league we don't want to say anything bad because what happens to the league it's like that it's like well you know these players are also thinking about their career their livelihood because like they're thinking, well, if I speak out, do you know, what if my can my contract is cancelled, like, and you know, I'm not a massive name. Are people gonna care about my stories, do you know? Especially when your self confidence is low, it's probably something that's going through your head. And um, yeah, that was that was a sad thing to to think about. I mean, I was um, unrelated to this. I was speaking to somebody in Portugal this week about sort of like them standing up for basic things in in women's soccer in Portugal. And how some players, um, you know, don't wanna stand up because they're scared they might not get a call up for the national team. It's that thing, it's that culture of women's sport. Well, just be grateful that you get to play, just be grateful that you get this, just be grateful that you get that, rather than, you know, we should be standing up and, and saying we want more because we deserve more, we demand more and yeah, I think that's definitely what you've seen this week from the players, from the players' association saying, Well, you know, we deserve this, we demand this because at the end of the day, you don't have a league without players, so you know they deserve to be absolutely getting what they want and being protected, for God's sake, in a in a work environment and feeling safe at work. Mm-hmm. And they're and they are starting to realize that they they do have
0: more power, especially as a collective, uh, especially as a players' association. You know, all of these abuses of power that we've been talking about. Are taking place while the NWSLPA is in talks with the league over their first collective their first collective bargaining agreement. Um, clearly, that can't come soon enough because without a CBA, there just haven't been any protections in place over the years. There haven't been clearly defined processes for how players report this kind of abuse and. Of course, it goes beyond just players being able to report abuse. These players need protection. They need more money. They need to be able to have free agency. I think having free agency would be a big factor in in, in these kinds of situations because right now players have no control over where they play. Um, you know, a, a player like Fairley or a player like Shim uh, certainly felt like they were stuck in in portland um because they didn't have any freedom of movement and so it's just gonna shine an even bigger spotlight on what's going on with the with the players association and the league and now is the time when the players have gone through so much where they can finally start to take back some control and you know we saw that with them refusing to play last weekend. Um, it sounds like they're going to come back for the midweek games, but that's one way to take control, but that's temporary. You know, the the way to really take back some power from the teams and from the league is through CBA negotiations. And I think that's a story that we're going to be following even more closely now.
1: Yeah. I think, like you say, stuff like freedom of movement, I mean, for me over here in Europe, it, kind of blows my mind a little bit, the the sort of way that the NWSL works. I remember when um, Press and Heath got drafted by Louisville and Casey Stoney was talking about it after, like, you know, this is just madness to think that you don't have control over where you get to play. And I've spoken to players before who have sort of been drafted without, well, not drafted, but, you know, moved around without any control. And, you know, especially for foreign players, it can be particularly eye-opening and and they don't know how to deal with it and you know maybe there is a, a better way to do things like that and i think a case like this might highlight it a little bit more um definitely
0: yeah i've always wondered how europeans view the concept of a draft um not just in nwsl obviously but across all american sports it's it's such a crazy thing because these these players are entirely powerless over where they end up they're just sitting around Waiting to see who takes them and where they end up playing. And it's just nothing like it exists in anywhere else besides the United States from from what I can see.
1: Yeah, I think in a way like you get it because it balances the league, right? And that's kinda cool. The the fact that the NWSL is is closer than definitely most leagues here in Europe but I remember speaking to um Lotta Okvist who was at Manchester United uh the Swedish player and she was drafted not drafted but got a move to Boston Breakers and then they folded and she moved to I think it was Houston and then two weeks later she was in Orlando and um like that is just the movement around that country like I think um it has its positives just like the the whole like the rights thing and stuff like that but there are definitely ways that i think it could be looked at to improve because like you said the the lack of freedom of movement um not just for players who you know maybe you're settled and you bought a house or something but also you know if there's a player that's not in an environment where they're happy then they can't move and this definitely highlights some of the issues that can come about from that.
0: Yeah, and I want to talk about what comes next in terms of these investigations. Uh, Like I said at the top of the show, there are no fewer than five that have already been announced. Um, There's a U.S. soccer one, there's an NWSL one, Portland one, a FIFA one, and the U.S. Center for Safe Sport. Uh, The one from U.S. soccer is being led by Sally Yates, who is a a figure that brings considerable heft. Uh, She was the deputy attorney general for the United States. So she was the second highest ranking law enforcement officer in this country. And she's someone who's pretty widely respected. And I I think when U.S. Soccer announced that she was going to be leading the investigation, there were a lot of uh, a lot of eyebrows raised. Um, Meanwhile, the NWSL has brought on Amanda Kramer um, a former district attorney who with a quick Google search, the, the NWSL community was kind of up in arms because it turned out that she was, uh, one of the people that decided not to prosecute Jeffrey Epstein, um, back in 2016. Um, you know, not going to get into a lot of the legal details of, of, why that may or may not have happened, but, um, that was something that didn't look great just from a PR perspective for the league um but with all these all these investigations i'm i guess i'm wondering why there has to be so many and if that could end up being a detriment to to getting real accountability here because what if one investigation finds one thing and the other investigation finds a different thing and one investigation blames one entity and the other investigation blames the other entity um it, it kind of feels like maybe it would be better off just being streamlined into just one or two investigations or, or how are you viewing this, this kind of
1: quest for accountability right now, Amy? I mean, I've never seen anything like it. It's beyond anything. It just, like you say, it just seems very strange to have five separate investigations. I guess on some levels, different entities, different, you know, these different people doing these different investigations have different things to investigate that are more sort of relevant to them, but it still seems really strange. And um, yeah, I guess we'll just have to see how it plays out because like I say, I don't think we've ever seen anything like that um, or i have definitely myself never sort of delved into anything like that in any sort of detail.
0: Yeah. it It does give you right now sort of a, uneasy feeling with Riley being out with Baird being out, but so many of these owners and executives still in place um, who have overseen um, some of the abuses of power that we've seen across the league that we've mentioned throughout the show. Uh, It doesn't give you a lot of belief right now that there's going to be this wholesale change that is so clearly needed in the league. And so I'm just really wondering how long they're going to take these investigations and, and what kind of results can be produced. And, and, and let's not forget that a lot of these offenders or these people that have overseen, uh, some of these coaches that have created these toxic environments, um, are owners and, it's, it's not so easy to just fire an owner like you can fire a coach or a GM because they have to sell the team. You have to find a buyer. Um, you know, I'm not entirely sure if there's a mechanism where the league can force them to sell the team, but um, I think overall there are a lot of changes that need to be made up and down the league, and, and right now it's a real open question whether – The required changes are going to be possible
1: yeah it's gonna be a very long slow kind of i guess painful in a way like um it's just there is so much that has gone into creating the culture the silenced culture um it's not just about taking those the people out that have already gone um it is you know like i said the the um the complaints were made to you know more than one commissioner. It's, you can't just get rid of one commissioner and be like, oh well, now all complaints will be taken seriously. Like, it's it goes beyond and and obviously, um, yeah, at clubs in particular, it becomes very sort of tricky. And I know that I mean the players' association are going to be speaking so much with with the league now, and it'd be I imagine that is definitely a conversation that they'll have, and I'd be interested to see you know what kind of the the end of the discussions are with with the league and and what kind of stuff they can do to get rid of some of these owners that have that have seen this sort of stuff and I think as well like you know I think moving forward it'll be a case of you know there'll probably be tighter criteria and a more stringent sort of background uh, check I guess going into owners and and you know making sure that for example, you're not hiring anybody like Paul Riley moving to a different team and and things like that, but that doesn't negate the fact that you have several still at clubs and yeah, like you say, it's gonna be it's gonna be very difficult to to know how how to change that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm glad you mentioned
0: multiple commissioners because Jeff Plush was the commissioner of the NWSL at the time of all of these Riley accusations and. I would say that more than anyone, he was most responsible for Riley continuing to work in the league after all this information with the Thorns came to light because the league was made aware of everything that happened in Portland and he oversaw Riley being hired by the Western New York Flash and then staying on with them when they moved to North Carolina. And in this athletic story, Plush just simply refused to comment, uh, which just is simply unacceptable. Like, you simply have to account for why this happened. And so Plush also needs to be held accountable. And the thing is, he's not with the league anymore. He's the CEO of U.S. Curling. So I- I'm curious if there's going to be any kind of a reckoning for him that's coming, even though he's not with the league. Um, but I, I also want to talk about this uh, this league three woman committee that has been formed to try to lead the league, at least moving forward on a temporary basis. Um, Amy, what was your, what were your impressions of, of this, this group that was recently formed?
1: I mean, I think it's important to have more women in those sort of positions of making decisions and overseeing decisions and things like that. But I was surprised it's just three white women. Um, You know, there's a lack of diversity sort of in there. And, you know, we saw, for example, do you know, there's there's been a lot of sort of racial issues raised. You know, you, we mentioned it earlier, but you go to the, the racial profiling um, of Sarah Gordon. And I think when you have more women in sort of positions, then, you know, obviously <laughs> saying it after, you know, Lisa Baird's emails, but um, you have more women in these sort of positions, then, you know, more people are, are seeing this from a, a women's perspective rather than. Just, you know, from a, the perspective of a white male, as it tends to be from a lot of higher up in a lot of companies and, and entities and higher up positions. But I think, you know, you need more diversity in there to be able to address all these sort of issues that are coming out because that's that's you get the perspective. And yeah, I was I was I was disappointed, to be honest. I thought that they were I don't know how much I'm surprised. Because I thought that the Players Association, I mean, I don't know if I, ex- I think a lot of people were asking the Players Association, like how much input did you guys have in, in these three women being appointed? And, you know, I haven't seen them respond to it. Um, And I would have thought, yeah, that maybe they'd have reached out to players and I'd have thought that diversity would have been um, a part of picking a, a committee that is as important as that.
0: Yeah, another potential issue with this committee is that it includes Amanda Duffy, um, who is now the vice president of the Orlando Pride, but she served as kind of an interim NWSL commissioner for several years after Plush left. And this committee, as part of its remit, is supposed to investigate different issues that have happened over the last several years. And so it appears to be something of a conflict of interest when Duffy is a part of this committee who is investigating things that, may have happened when she was the de facto commissioner.
1: Yeah, exactly. I just, again, I just, I mean, obviously we don't know, but, you know, I just, I would like to know what input the players had in that personally.
0: Yeah, it will definitely be an
1: interesting set of
0: developments to follow moving forward. Um, We are going to leave it there for this week. Uh, Thank you once again for listening to all of us. Thank you, Amy. And just a reminder once again to listeners to please rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again, and we will talk to you all next week. All of us, the U.S. Women's Soccer Show from Goal. Get the latest news and views on the U.S. Women's National Team and the NWSL on Goal.